And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, She is a journalist, a podcaster, a lover of baked goods, host of the ABC's flagship current affairs program, 7.30, and a lady who knows how to stand up to a politician, Lee Sales. (laughs) If you're excited to meet me, you must have a terribly low bar, I'm afraid. (laughs) No, no, no. There is a part of this podcast, for some of these episodes, I've been chatting with people who I've worked with previously, and now I'm getting to the stage where I'm starting to chat with people who I haven't worked with previously, but I've also realised it's a great way to meet people you've admired from afar. <laughs> I'm yeah. like, oh, I really like this person and now I have an excuse to say, do you want to come on my podcast? But sometimes I'm scared to do that though because then, you know, like I interviewed Crowded House last year for mm-hmm. 7.30 and I, I mean, that's just the sort of soundtrack to my life basically. Yeah. And so I was scared to meet them because I thought if Neil Finn turns out to be an a-hole, yes. that is... Is just I feel like the entire like my entire life's going to have a sort of you know dark cloud a dark shadow is going to pass exactly over. but maybe that's because uh, coming from an FM radio background I mean this is just par for the course the number of times that you meet your heroes and they turn out to be arrogant pieces yeah. of work in your line of work you're meeting a lot of politicians the assumption is they're going to be an <laughs> arrogant piece of work so it's almost like if they're not your your expectations are exceeded sometimes whether where it's the opposite way when you're meeting somebody whose music you've listened to or movies you've watched yeah. because it's not them. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, I, I think most people that I've met, you know, even really famous people, um, have tended to be completely fine. Like, mm. it's it's actually not that often that you meet somebody that you go, wow, you are a complete horror head. <laughs> um, yeah. so I'm happy to report Neil Finn was really nice. Yeah. Love of Crowded House intact. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so, you, you now host what, for an Australian journalist, really is a show that's the top of the tree. For you, when you started out, was this ever a goal or a dream that you had or did it seem too far-fetched at the beginning? When I started out in journalism. In journalism, um, yeah. I, what I actually wanted when I first started was the cadetship at the Courier-Mail, which is Brisbane's newspaper, um, because I don't know why maybe this, this had been sort of uh, fermented in my brain in my course. I thought real journalists work in newspapers and then when you've got newspaper experience then you d- go across to television um I mean I think I would have liked to have a job in television at some point but I just thought I'll start in newspapers and then I applied for that and I didn't get it and I had done a prac subject which was you know at the time it was called work experience everyone now says internship (laughs) um at various places one of which was channel nine in Brisbane and then their most junior dog's body person um was promoted up to be a reporter and so they had this junior entry-level job came available and I basically happened to be around and so then I got into that and then pretty much um for the rest of my career then I've mostly stayed in television with a few periods in radio and then I've done some writing around the place here there and everywhere um but yeah I never I never did get that newspaper cadetship that I thought that I wanted were you devastated when you didn't get that I was pretty disappointed although I think I already had the nine job by that point so it was less disappointing Mm. because in that era as well so I came out of uni in the early 1990s which was um, in the recession, the terror of not getting a job was just everyone was absolutely terrified about not being able to get a job. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, people have gap years and they travel and stuff like that. Nobody that I knew did that because you were just so worried that if you disappeared that then you were never going to get a job. So people would even – I had two friends who quit uni 
a semester before they finished because they got a job offer and that they thought oh, was wow. more important than finishing the final six months of uni. Does, is journalism something that you wanted to do from when you were little? When did that kind of form for you? I, I remember distinctly when I was in grade three doing an activity where we had to write a story. I always really loved reading and writing stories and the teacher in my grade three class said, oh, that's such a good story. You can go and read it to the grade fours. And wow. I remember when I came back, they were doing an activity where you had to draw a picture of what you wanted to be when you grew up and I drew somebody sitting at a desk writing. And so I think I, from a young age, wanted to write basically write books and then as I got older I mean I went through like everyone does phases of I wanted to be a vet and I wanted to be a cruise director (laughs) watching a little bit too much of the love boat (laughs) I would love you to have become a cruise director (laughs) hi welcome to the SS sales I'll be your cruise director (laughs) Um, and so then by the time I sort of got to high school and you had to get a bit serious about what you wanted to do I thought well you can't make a living out of um, you know writing books really unless you're gigantically successful and so the sort of closest thing to that I could see that you could make a living out of was being a journalist. So that was a decision to go to university to do journalism because that was a path it wasn't like most of us do which is like I don't know what I'm doing I'll go and do that. (laughs) Yeah no I did I did I was one of those people who picked a course that I thought had a job at the end of it that I wanted to actually do. It's funny now because with my own children like so when I grew up um in my household, the people you met had jobs like soldier, teacher, plumber, builder. Um, we didn't have people coming through the house who were like artists, comedians, writers, jobs like that. Whereas now I think in my house, people like that come through all the time. And I think, no, my children are going to think being a musician's a viable job. <laughs> comedy is not a career. Like, yeah. no, don't pick comedy. Yeah. Um, but you yeah. realise too that you, if that's what your little kids are within their core, oh, my gosh, you can say till the cows come home, don't do it, but they're going to do it anyway. Yeah, and you can't, you can't as much as I sort of think, oh, for God, for the love of God, just pick like a normal job, mm. an electrician or something. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you can't because you, you just can't impose that on your um, children, you know, they've got to do what they want to do, basically. But certainly, I, I sort of look at some things and I think, okay, you know, performance art—that's a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> What's your job going to be? <laughs> yeah. It's hard, though. I mean, even in your industry, the guarantee of a of, of full career from job to job is is difficult. Yeah, I think that is actually the hardest thing in this line of work, or one of the hardest things is just the uncertainty, mm. because you pretty much start any gig assuming that it has a use-by date. Um, um, and so pretty much from the first day in, you feel like the clock's ticking down on how long you can stretch the gig. And so if it's going well, you know, you might stretch it for 10 years. If it's going not well, you might get six months, you know. Mm. So that I, th- I think is always difficult. And the media at the moment particularly is in such a state of incredible flux. Yeah. Um, I mean, geez, if you've got 10 years at something, you're doing very, very well. Does that feeling mean that when you were doing each of your jobs, you're kind, you've always kind of got an eye on what next or how could I – where am I going to go? I I have done that and I've tried more in recent times to do less of that just because I think – I don't have many regrets about my career but I think when I was younger one of the things I did was I didn't enjoy what I was doing enough at the time and be in the moment appreciating it because I was always thinking, what am I going to do next? Okay, I've done this now. Now what am I doing next? And I think there was a couple of jobs I've had that I really liked that I left and went to a new job because I thought, okay, I have to keep moving up the food chain – And then when I went to the new job, I thought, oh, gee, I really missed that other job because I actually just liked that job. And I don't think that there's any 
great need to be in a huge rush out of something if you're actually enjoying it. Having said that, you know, I was changing jobs because I wanted to get the right experience to be the Washington correspondent for the ABC, which I then did. And had I not been zipping around various things and getting experience, maybe I wouldn't have done that. But yeah, I do. So I'm, I'm trying at the moment because I enjoy my job to just think, you know, I just enjoy this job while it lasts because mm. it will end at some point. And so just enjoy it while you're doing it. Was the job at Channel 9 your first foot in the door? In media, in yeah. In media? Yep, yeah, yeah. So that was um, – and it was, you know, rolling the auto cue, printing out the scripts, answering the phone when members of the public rang in, um, sending crews out on jobs, organising, you know, whatever had to be done. It was just basically doing whatever I was told to do. So not really very much journalism at that point. I did some research for stories. But – it was an excellent grounding in how a television show works because the nature of my job was that I got to see what everyone does on mm. a television show. And so even now when I do 7.30 and I'm in the studio as the host, I know what the director does. I know what the DA does. I know what the lighting guy does. Um, I know what the producer does. I understand how everyone's role fits in the whole and I think that's sometimes helpful in understanding how it works and also in having respect for the people around you because I've seen some people in this business who kind of swan in with very little understanding of the work that people behind the scenes are putting in and their treatment of those people is reflected in that lack of understanding and you think my god these people are in for 10 hours before you arrive and 10 hours after you leave like you need to understand how much your job is dependent on them. Definitely so. And I think I'm really conscious as well that when you're the person who's the front person, even though, you know, what I do is journalism, it's still performance actually Mm -hmm. to a large degree because I'm on live television. And if it's a, say, like an election night, I'm on live television for a long period of time. And so the people around me give me a lot of support and leeway because they know that that involves a lot of pressure and you have to be, you know, really on your A game and not having anything distract you. So, for example, um, the floor manager for 7.30, who's a guy named Mick who's fantastic, one of his jobs is to make sure that everything that's going on around me in the live environment is under control, that if my mic fails, there's a backup. If my earpiece fails, there's a backup. If something goes wrong, that he manages to move my headspace into not dwelling on what's gone wrong because the, the way for future things to go wrong is to get caught up in what's just got wrong. On mm-hmm. live TV, if something goes wrong, you have to just let it go and then move on in the moment, worry about it later. So Mick, um, I remember one time I came in, I had a sore throat and I was coughing and I ha- always have a glass of water next to me, had a sip of water. Um, it was I was recording a promo for the show and when I came back to do the show an hour later and I had a sip of my water – the normal glass of cold water had been replaced by a glass of warm water with some lemon in it. And I know, I hadn't asked or anything, it just got done. And so I was thinking about it later and I was thinking, for the wrong person, that is a very slippery slope to then thinking that you are entitled Mm -hmm. to have warm water with a slice of lemon in it. No, you're not entitled to have that. That was actually considerate (laughs) that somebody did that. And they did that because, you know, I think partly Mick did it because he likes me, but also because it's his job to make the show as smooth as possible and he therefore has to look after the talent to make sure that they are as relaxed and comfortable and in a good headspace as possible. But I think sometimes on-air talent starts to think that, 
you're entitled to get special treatment when actually you're not you're not entitled people are just doing it for you because they're trying to make a good overall product and you rely on those people so much to Mm. help you out at the end of the day they are the ones that can make you look terrible that can put you off your game if they want to put you off your game you know having those people around you that go I know how this person works and I know she's probably feeling a bit off about this I'm going to reassure her to give you the confidence to do the job that you need to do it's essential to have good relationships because otherwise it's a damn lonely business totally and and also there's so much trust involved in what I do because I'm out there on the high wire Mm. so I have to trust that every other person because I can't you know run everything I have to trust that um, the reporters have got their stories in on time that the director is going to roll the story at the right time so I'm not left out there dangling on something massive and complex like an election broadcast I'm trusting that when they tell me to go somewhere next that there's something to go to um, and that they're not going to leave me on that too long so that I run out of things to say that while I'm doing that they're lining up the next thing to go to so even things as simple as being given a glass of warm water um even though this is never stated, in some little, you know, spider part of your brain, you're thinking if they're across the detail of that I have a sore throat and I need warm water, they're probably across the detail that the lighting looks good and that there's something for me to throw to next and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you're the person on the camera that if something stuffs, stuffs up, it's not that somebody at home goes, God, that's the producer's fault. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's know, right. They go, oh, Lee can't run her own show properly. <laughs> yeah, you that's know? right. Doesn't Lee look like a dickhead? No one's going, oh, gee, there's someone out the back who really, you know, messed up there yeah because nobody really there's a lot of people that just don't know how the you know have never pulled the curtain back on the wizard they don't know what goes on behind the scenes so that trust is so important Mm. you were the the washer you did get to washington correspondent we'll talk a bit more about that but um you're also the national security correspondent for the abc host of late line now 7 30 and plenty of other stuff in between but in terms of that trajectory did you feel like you were following i know you said you you had a um things that you wanted to do to get to washington through each of those subsequent steps have you felt like it's been a discernible career path or have you kind of been taking the opportunities as they pop up definitely taking the opportunities where they've popped up and it's amazing how you know I think life's really interesting because I think that um, life doesn't usually unfold according to whatever plan you think Mm. you've got it's only in hindsight that you look back at it and you go, oh, well, this happened so that could happen and this happened and this was meant to happen so that could happen. But actually it's all just a series of usually random stuff and, and taking opportunities. I think the one thing that I've done is um, when I've been offered an opportunity, even if I've thought that it's beyond my capability, I've accepted it because that's the only way to move forward. So, for example, when I came back from Washington and I was a national security correspondent, um, I got asked to, f- to fill in a few times hosting Late Line. I can't remember why, but I did. Um, Late Line at that time, uh, it was sort of a different show to what it is now, but it was a hard show because it's very – it was very pointy-headed national affairs, international affairs, and the interviews were long, like 15 minutes long. And it had been hosted by big, you know, Kerry O'Brien and Maxine McHugh and big names and Tony Jones. And um, so, I mean, I probably wasn't, you know, really capable of – doing that or you know on paper stepping into it but if you don't do it then they're going to ask somebody else to do it and Mm. then you've missed your opportunity to do it and unfortunately with um live television and live broadcasting there's only one way to learn and that's by doing it it's a very hard thing to practice for you can do you know I've learned lots of things over my career interviewing people in the field and whatnot that gave me 
the base, I guess, to host live television. But unfortunately, the only way you can really know what it's like to do it is to just do it. Mm. And so I've tried hard, even though, even things that have really scared me and I've thought, oh, man, I just don't know if I can do that. Um, I've still accepted it because I think, well, better to better to have a go and then if you mess it up, well, no one's going to die. It's just yeah, television. That's it. Um, <laughs> and, but I just hate the thought that I could be at home on the couch thinking – wow, I could have been hosting this show interviewing Hillary Clinton and I was too scared and now I'm watching somebody else do it. There is a real sense in this business to, that you say yes to everything mm. and then you sometimes you get into a situation where you're like, I am doing so many different things. <laughs> I can barely keep my head above water. But there's, you know, there is that real fear. If I say no to this, then I don't want to be the person that said no because there is a sense from people handing over the jobs do you know how many people would want to do this? Yeah, definitely. Um, and also, you know, I remember when I got offered to come to 7.30 when Kerry O'Brien retired and I talked to an old boss of mine and said, you know, what do you think? I said, that's going to be rough because Kerry's done it for 13 years and I think even if I do a really good job for the first three years, it's just going to be, oh, she sucks, bring back <laughs> Kerry. We miss Kerry. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I think, uh, and, I, you know, my boss, his advice basically was, yeah, well, that's all true but – you know, really, are you going to say no to hosting 7.30? Like, you just have to do it. Um, and if it doesn't work out and you suck, well, then that's just going to happen. So, you just have to take it, basically. Do you remember what the first night when you were official host was like? Um, yeah, I remember I was wearing a grey jacket. <laughs> I just remember so much, so much effort on the, you know, what are you going to be wearing? What's the set going to look like? You know, there's so much attention oh, on all yeah. of that stuff. Um, yeah, and I just remember feeling anxious and thinking oh man I hope this is going to be okay and just yeah sort of buckling in but I think because I knew that it would be a hard ride and that it is a hard transition when you're coming in behind someone who's done a job for a long time that I had I, d- I never had any expectations that everyone was going to instantly go wow yeah. where's this girl been all our lives <laughs> it, it takes a while for people to get used to you and accept you and like you and stuff it's also it also helps when the station sort of renames the show so it looks like it's kind of something different. Well, the one thing I would never do again, which I learned in that era, was I think now the big promotion of something is never a good idea because I remember at the time it was like, you know, reinventing the wheel, it's current affairs, <laughs> like you've never seen it before, you know, groundbreaking, blah, blah, blah. And it was like... You can't – current affairs is what it is. You yeah. know, interviewing politicians is what it is. You can't really – you can do little bits and pieces around the edges, but ostensibly you, you're working with what's on the news that day. Um, so I think now I'm always sort of big on – I remember once when I was coming back from maternity leave, they were like, oh, we should do a campaign. Lee Sales is back this week. And I was like, no, do not do that because then everyone's going to expect me on the first day to do an interview that, you know, results in the resignation of the Prime Minister or something. Yeah. So let me just slide in really like everyone just switches on. Oh, she's back. Great. Totally. I'm all about the silent assassin, you know, <laughs> under promise, over deliver. 100%. Let us not have the parade going down the street and then set me up for a failure at the 100%. end. 100%. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just sneak on in and do a job that nobody was expecting to be good or bad. It just is. Exactly. Um, what was the first sort of role for you? Was it the Washington correspondent that was like, ooh, I'm on my way here? Um, I think actually for me it would have been a job a couple of jobs before that which was I got to be New South Wales political reporter which was a big job in the Sydney newsroom mm. um, and so and that felt like you know serious journalism with a big profile and lots of live crosses and big stories and elections and all that sort of stuff and so for me that felt like yep 
this is a good job. This is where I feel like I want to be in this sort of space. And so that was that. And then Washington, I just had always been fascinated. I just think American politics is so amazing and I'd been just always interested in that. And so, and also I'm such a sook. I'm not, I couldn't, I couldn't be in a like Middle East bureau or something because I'm too scared. I wouldn't be able to do war zones and that sort mm. of thing. So Washington to me seemed like a relatively safe posting compared to the others. Yeah. Um, and so that appealed on that level. Doing the political reporting was how many sort of years had you been, had it been since that first job at Channel 9 to get to that point? Not very long actually. I think I was 21, I turned 21 when I was at 9 and then I was doing that job when I was 24. Wow. Yeah, so not very long. I, I sort of – this is why I say sometimes you should do jobs you enjoy for longer because I was home from Washington by 32 and that was my sort of – at the time, that was my dream job and then I'm 32 and I'm home. Like, oh, right, what am I going to do now? <laughs> so I didn't really have any I, plans for after that. I just – then it was a bit of a case of, well, let's just see what happens. You were saying that you took jobs because you felt like you needed certain skills to get to Washington. What were those different jobs that you felt added up to, to being able to be that correspondent? The main thing was um, – because I'd done uh, – and up until – I went away in 2001, I'd only done television reporting. So from late uh, the late 90s, I went and did radio reporting so that I could report television and radio. Mm-hmm. So that was the main thing. So, so the New South Wales political reporter job was a television job. And so I left that so I could go and work in radio current affairs and learn some radio skills. That's a pretty – yeah, I mean, that's a great approach to your career, right? Because some people are just – they don't think, oh, you know what, I need to feather my nest. I need to make sure I'm good at this, that and the other thing. Yeah. And then you find, though, when you get to a certain point in your career, there's a confidence that comes with – I've really worked hard to know how all the parts of this machine work. Yeah, and I, sometimes I look at reporters who are um, – you know how sometimes fairly young reporters get a high profile oh, yeah. fairly quickly? Mm. And sometimes I look at them and think – that's great and I guess you know if I were you I'd probably be riding that um, wave as well but you're going to hit a ceiling because you haven't I always think of it as like bricking in the foundations Mm. so with reporters I I often think if you have someone who starts to be a bit of a hot shot and they've they seem like they're going to be quite good in the studio and a good presenter and whatnot but they haven't done a lot of reporting the best thing you could do for them is to say I'm sending you to Darwin for a year, sending you to Brisbane for a year in the newsroom and you're going to be a general news reporter and you're going to be assigned whatever the chief of staff gives you every day. And if you do a really good job of that, then I'm going to put you in blah, blah, blah. You know, you have a reward and a good job at the end of it because I think nothing – of all of the things I've done, really nothing has – taught me as much as when I was a general news reporter and you just get sent on every day there's been a double murder suicide off you go there's a court case there's a sports story um go and do me a color story at the Easter show um you just every single type of story that you can do I've had to do over the years um and so that is a really good um foundation it means that you sort of never get to the point where you're left exposed. And I think you're right. There's no way as a 20-year-old or a 23, whatever, if you get an opportunity to this super high profile that you're going to say no to it. But it's sort of like um, X Factor or the Australian Idol sort of situation where there's mm. where, where people are thrust into this situation of immense success and fame and stuff with none of the background to support them. And so when it falls out from under them, you feel like, man, we have to have more responsibility for people like this because nobody likes to be left exposed and at the end of something we're going, 
guys. Yeah. Guys. And you, it's it's also that thing of um, I often think about it with comedians because TV often, you know, you're looking for comedians for panel shows or whatever. And people who have done a lot of time in, I mean, I think improv is the best possible grounding for any sort of panel show. Mm. Um but if you've done, say, a lot of stand-up comedy and you've worked in everything from clubs to pubs to places where 15 people show up, you learn how to read a room and how to talk to a room and how to control a room. And that is an incredibly useful skill to have. Even if you end up doing radio and it's just you in a studio with one other person, I still think there's something about um, understanding audience and how to speak to audience that you learn from speaking to a large room of people. And it's a different skill. Like I find if I'm speaking say at a writers festival or something in front of 500 people that is totally different to talking into a camera for 7 30 but there's still things I learn from that about for example warmth and connection that I can then bring into the studio mm. well it's all about putting little things in the blender right to eventually get something out yeah. the other thing I was talking actually to Sarah Harris um, uh, on this show about that exact approach of going and she felt very similar she's like I often took a step back sometimes to go and get the skills that I felt were lacking and now I kind of am at the stage where I'm like oh no I've really done my time I feel like I deserve the stuff that's coming my way but one of the other reasons why that was great is is that idea of trying to quiet the imposter syndrome within. Yeah. <laughs> because in those early years when you don't have the experience, if you get those opportunities, I'm not sure if you felt that, but I certainly in my career have had a lot of times just thought, oh, goodness, I'm not ready. Oh, yeah, totally. Or, or I sort of sometimes think um, someone's going to call my bluff and go, <laughs> oh, God, sorry, we've made a really big mistake. When we said you to interview <laughs> Hillary Clinton, we actually were thinking somebody else. Like, Yeah, I think... For me, it's also doing the work. I mean, I think doing the work is really, really, really important. So I probably, if anything, over-prepare. Like, look at me coming to your podcast and making up notes on a piece of paper to bring. I love this. Just you are a woman after my own heart. I am so <laughs> up for I'm exactly the same. Even when I'm a guest on something, I go, what do I need to prepare? Yeah, I'm I, terrified of being left out nude. Yeah. Completely. And yeah. the, the goal is because you want to look like you're just talking off the top of your head. Mm-hmm. But, of course, I've thought through, oh, okay, she's probably going to ask about this. I could say that. I've, what's a funny anecdote about this. Oh, I love um, this. This is amazing. <laughs> I love you even more now. Okay, great. So um, I always with the interviews as well or with the show, I over-prepare because it gives me a sense of security. Um, and so then when I have to actually go on live, say an interview the Prime Minister, I mean, I'm still nervous, but I can reassure myself and say, but you haven't left any stones unturned. And for me, that really helps me then do the performance. If I were going in thinking oh man, geez, I hope we don't end up going into debt and deficit because I haven't done any reading on that at all, then that means I'm going to get a bad dose of anxiety and find it hard to actually perform. Whereas if I can go in and go, look, I think there's pretty much no area that we can go into that I don't feel pretty on top of, then I'm able to just be in the in the zone. Which is an amazing sense of confidence in the moment because a lot of people go on screen and they have the list of questions the producer has prepared and outside of that list of questions ain't nothing you I can talk about. Even, I can't even imagine. Terrifying. That would just be, Terrifying. Yeah, I just can't even imagine that. Like I don't like – sometimes producers will say, do you want me to talk in your ear at all? I'm just like, no. Talk in my ear if the studio catches fire and I need to evacuate <laughs> other than that and give me a countdown every minute. Other than that, I do not want to hear a single thing if I don't need to 
hear it. So everything that you're doing on air in terms of and interviews or whatever that you are all, you are deeply ingrained within the process of coming up yeah. with that content. Because you couldn't and, you couldn't do it yeah. otherwise. You couldn't do it because you you're relying a lot on listening to what the person's saying and following up and if you don't know the subject that's not to say when I'm preparing my interview that I'm not working with my producer who's a guy named Callum who's really smart and excellent so we'll be saying so he was in me with me for example in the budget lockup the other week we'll read the papers together I'll say well I think this what do you think he'll say I think that what and I'll say I'm thinking of starting with this he'll say why don't you start with that no I think that's a dumb idea no I think that's a dumb idea no you suck no you suck (laughs) um so yeah you just have like a there's a collaborative thing, but at the end of the day, I'm the one who's got to walk out there basically. So I have to feel comfortable. And you also, you know, a lot of the stuff that you do that gets a lot of attention is those more hard hitting, for want of a better word, um, you know, interviews with politicians and stuff where you take them to task. Yeah. And you can't do that unless you are covered in some serious armour where if they come back with something, mm. you don't get left exposed because otherwise your credibility is non-existent. And in a job like this, that's that's the most important thing about what you do, you yeah. being a credible journalist. And, the, I mean, that brings some pressure because I often feel like I can never say anything wrong because yeah. I have to be sort of unimpeachable in my position. Um, and it also means, again, going to the trust thing. Like, say, for example, uh, I mean, I'm sure I do sometimes say things wrong, but if say if I'm going to quote the unemployment figure, I'll always say to Callum, Callum, can you just go fact check that to make sure I know the actual thing? Or if I'm going to put someone on the spot about this, we'll talk about how we think they might respond and then I'll say, well, if they say that, can you just go and find me some data about blah, 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 so I've got to come back to that. If they say, Lee, that's nonsense, I need something to come back and go, well, actually, I'm going from a report by blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, we do we go through all that stuff pretty thoroughly. Have you ever had a situation where you've someone's come up with a question you thought, Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I have. Not, none spring immediately to mind. Often after the event, you'll, you know, somebody will say something and you'll think, oh, like one of my friends said to me, the, the Prime Minister was on the other week and I asked, was asking him something or other and he said, oh, Lee, I can't believe you're asking me this on the ABC. I don't believe your heart's in it. <laughs> and one of my friends said to me, oh, that's right, it was about the new sort of citizenship test. One of my friends who's not a journo said to me, I just wish when he said, Lee, I don't believe your heart's in it, it that you had said, yes, Prime Minister, but is yours. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but that's those classic lines that when you walk away from an argument and go, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> as soon as Derek, my friend, said it, I just went, Oh, oh, God, why did you say that? I'm just going to be lying awake at 3 a.m. thinking about it. I mean, and, but I try with that sort of stuff to not beat myself up because, you know, it is live TV and you can't – it's it's gone, you know. No point thinking, oh, I should have said this, should have said that, didn't – you know, I didn't. So mm. move on. What's what's the next thing? Yeah. Um, going back to, to your time in Washington, that, that was – you were there 2001 2000 to 2005, which is, you know, in the wake of two, September 11. Was that time over there as a journalist just unbelievable? Because that was just an amazing time. It was. In a bad way. It was. Although now, of course, when I look at what's going on now. Oh, yeah, of course. man. Mm. But at the time, yeah, that I mean, it was truly an extraordinary time. And I I think people now, because a lot of time has has elapsed, people maybe forget how this feeling of uncertainty and, oh, my God, where is the next terrorist attack coming from? And it was just so massive. You know, you'd be on the subway in New York or the metro in Washington and if the train stopped between stations, you could literally see everybody tense up 
start looking around thinking why are we stopped here what's going on wow. it just was like this sort of unspoken you know this thought bubble just would go over the whole carriage like is it a terrorist attack mm. um so yeah it was a big and then the war in iraq and all of that sort of stuff so yeah it was an it was a momentous time but um still and i mean you know i remember at the time everyone sort of hating on George W. Bush and saying, oh, he's so incompetent and so out of his depth. Oh, if only we could have him back. (laughs) (laughs) Whoever thought there'd be a time when you'd go, remember George W.? I know. Like, you know, and his professional experienced advisors who'd spent time in government previously. Yeah, Yeah, it's pretty incredible, isn't it? Man, a lot. His his faith in the intelligence community. Oh, my word. (laughs) It must be a pretty amazing time to be doing that now over there. You'd just be in the middle. But I get the sense to listen to a lot of political podcasts from over in the the states and I just get the sense that anybody uh, any of the correspondents there or the people co- that cover the White House or Congress they're literally bamboozled they have no idea what's happening no idea what's going to happen they're just hanging on for dear life completely and I I was talking to my friend Annabelle Crabb the other day about it saying um if you were delivering this as a novel or a movie script, it would come back to you and the editor would say, listen, it's just you're over-egging it. You can't have, like, the National Security Advisor sacked for liaising with Russia and the President sacking the head of the FBI and, you know, yeah. extreme vetting. Like, you just got to – what's this story about? You know, this is too much. It's not believable. Yes. But I, I wonder – I mean, I think I've been too generous in the past when I've even – tried to intellectualize whether this is a strategy by Trump. I go, oh, I'm just giving the guy too much credit, but I'm just trying to work out in my own head what the hell is going on? I mean, I just wake up every day thinking, what? Yeah. You're sacked the head of the FBI now? <laughs> my God. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. It's so, amazing. What yeah. are those overseas postings like? Is it sort of – I would imagine there's a huge expat community there. Is it – is it an enjoyable experience? Is it lonely? Is it stressful? All of that. Mm. Um, I Look, I just absolutely loved it. You know, one of the great experiences of my life. And I loved living in the US. It felt like you were living in a movie. Um, yeah, totally. Which was incredible. It, it's always really busy and your life does revolve around work. You know, you don't you – don't, if the phone rings and something's happened, you're doing it. It doesn't mm. matter if your mother's just landed for a two-week visit, you're doing it. Mm. So you're very, very busy all the time. But the work is so engaging and interesting and you travel a lot and so that's interesting and engaging as well. So, yeah, I found that fascinating. I mean, I I thought that my time there couldn't have been more interesting. I did the 2004 presidential election, which was George Bush versus John Kerry. 08 was then Obama against Hillary and then um, Obama against McCain and McCain picks Palin. When I saw the 08 election, I just was like, <laughs> oh, God, I was so ripped off. <laughs> 04 was so boring. Yeah. Well, um, I, I yeah. guess there's a – well, the way that things are going, who knows what well, – you might be doing that every yeah. single time. I know, every single time. time just gets more and more <laughs> intriguing. Did you get to the point where you were like, oh, I, did you have an opportunity back home or did you go, oh, okay, I need to just not have this life it's, anymore? It, it was – you get three years and you can have an optional fourth year and I did four, but I felt ready to leave at the end of four because I felt like I think when you know that you're somewhere temporarily, you sort of don't put down roots Roots, as deeply as you might. And so for me, it either felt like I'm either out or I have to put down roots. Like Mm. it just feels like it's got to be one or the other. I don't think I can just keep going in this sort of thing. Um, And so I was ready to go at the end of the four years. I mean, I was sad to go, Mm. but I still felt like, yeah, I knew it was a short-term thing and that was awesome, loved it time to go home. That's one of the things about working there is that as much as we hate to admit it, 
It really is the centre of the universe. It is, 100%. So it's you are playing in the Olympics over there uh, and uh, even though we're not, we are, you know, a major player in the world, in comparison, it's quite backwater here. Well, and that's, I think, the other reason why it's bad sometimes for foreign correspondents to stay out too long because you end up feeling like where you are is normal and that back home is sort of just less interesting. Mm. Whereas actually you want the, the correspondent to be very connected to back home so they have a sense of what people at home would be interested in and want to know about. So you don't want to become too much of a local. So I remember when I came back to Australia, Australian politics to me, it felt like the equivalent of if we were following Dubbo City Council. It just seemed <laughs> yes. like after Washington, it just felt like, oh God, are you joking? I've got to be interested in this now. Like, this is just so boring. It's so, yeah, it's so different. And then you just sort of over time, you get back to being engaged in where you are. But initially it just felt like, oh man, this seems so low rent. You know, I was just talking about wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now we're talking about whatever this nonsense is. Mm. Do you miss it? Ever? I do. I mean, especially at the moment, I look at it and think, oh, man, that would be some serious fun being over there, finding some stories to report on all of that stuff. So I do. But for the current time in my life where I've got young children, a studio-based job is actually mm. better for my overall life. And it's – I mean, I've been so lucky. Every job I've had has been really fun and interesting. I guess in those moments and you're having been over there post-September 11, you, you have a taste of this anyway. It's uh, Journalism is a job that allows you a front, a front row seat to history. Mm. And those kind of moments, I'm sure there are journalists over there right now during the Trump years where they're thinking, my goodness, this stuff – is going to be talked about in textbooks and classrooms for years <laughs> to come, Completely. the broken years, Completely, you know. Yeah. So it's so interesting to just even have had a small part of your career to have been a part of those things where everybody in the world would go, oh, my goodness, those years in Washington, or, oh, my goodness, that time in the Iraq, or, oh, my goodness, those, you know, those really big monumental moments. Totally, or things like... You know, I can say to people, oh, yeah, I've been to Guantanamo Bay. I've walked yeah. around there. Like, you know, things like that where you go, yep, yeah, I went down to Hurricane Katrina. Like, just stuff like that where you've actually been and gone. The other thing I find fascinating is just seeing where people end up once you've been in journalism a long time. So, for example, um, the guy in the Oval Office who Trump supposedly leaked the well, – we know actually did leak the classified intelligence to Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. He was Russia's ambassador to the United Nations when I was there. So he was the dude who'd come out. I remember he always used to be smoking at the podium, which was so unusual for someone. So he'd be like – or he'd have he, – sorry, he wouldn't be smoking. He'd have his smoke in his hand ready to go because they were it was so tense in the meeting about were they going to invade Iraq or not. Oh, wow. So Sergei Lavrov would come out and make his remarks and then he would literally step back from the I can just jab his smoke into his mouth and then head outside oh, to have a wow. smoke. So, yeah, he was just a real um, – I just remember his real granite face sort of thing. And so, yeah, he's clearly moved up the food chain, you know, in Russian politics massively. Yeah. And so, yeah, various people you sort of think, oh, that's right, you were so-and-so then and now you've got this job. And yeah. Well, that's an important part too, I think, because a lot of understanding and um, breaking down politics and arguing certain points about what's going on now – requires a depth of knowledge from years back. Definitely. You know, to see is this 
typically what labor has done over year, over the years even something as simple as that yeah. you need those years of understanding to get to a point where you can go oh i actually know how to make a point on this so i suppose all of those years of experience through politics is so important for what you do now definitely because it brings um a huge amount of context i mean i don't have as good a memory as some people are incredible what they retain i feel like because i'm the volume of stuff i'm consuming all the time i feel like the heaps of it just falls out the back of my head you know new stuff comes in and old stuff just falls out but occasionally somebody will say something and you'll think well hang on you were saying the exact opposite 10 years ago or they'll talk about Afghanistan and you'll think well hang on weren't we told these people were the worst of the worst 10 years ago or whatever so yeah the con- the context is just absolutely invaluable it's so important because I think we are so everything's so short term now and I'm always so fascinated uh, particularly in the times of, you know, video and audio and recordings of everything, when politicians say something and you go, do, do you not realise, like, you <laughs> yeah. have said this kind of the opposite of this stuff in front of a camera before? And it is such a good thing to be able to pick up on that. But the truth is that the majority of people at home, unless they're deeply ingrained in politics, they don't they don't pick that up. But also the thing that I find so confounding now in this era of fake news mm. is uh, that you can point that out to people and it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, that's true actually. So you can point out that Donald Trump lies and makes things up and says things that are just patently untrue and stupid and it doesn't matter. Mm. Even, you know, it's interesting because as a, I was thinking last night as an ABC reporter, you know, you are objective and I described Trump in a question to somebody as, um, you know, a narcissistic. Um, liar or something like that and I thought that's not even an issue because it's demonstrably accurate Mm. imagine calling any other politician a narcissistic liar yeah Um, you would not be able to but in his case it's so demonstrably true even his allies acknowledge that the guy uh, is those things Mm. I just think it's just extraordinary yeah there seems to be I don't know whether I've noticed before such blind faith like I get that people are pro a certain party. I think probably that I am a staunchly liberal person, I'm a staunchly Labor person, isn't as much a part of society as it used as I remember it when back in the 80s, you know, when your parents were like, don't you ever tell anybody what you are, you know, because I am staunchly this or staunchly that. Now I think obviously with the rise of independence and stuff, people are much more sort of happy to go where the wind takes them. But with Trump, I found this idea of blind faith with their supporters where you go, okay, okay, I, I get it. You love him. He's great. You're super disaffected. You hate the life that you've got because you've run out. You you know, your job doesn't exist anymore and you think the elites are a bunch of a-holes. But is there like a small point that I'm making here that you could go, oh, no, I can see that. You ca- They can't see anything. No. Even like he could do – when he said I could shoot somebody in Times Square and I wouldn't lose a vote, I think that is genuinely true. Yeah. And I think I if he did that and you said he's murdered someone, no. No, he just... It's a conspiracy. It's a media conspiracy, you know. It's kind of scary. Over the years, you've won a couple of Walkley Awards. Um, Is the second one less uh, exciting than the first? (laughs) (laughs) Um, All of that stuff, it's nice when you get awards and it's nice when people that you've done good things or you get praise or whatever. But I think you can't take that stuff too seriously because if you don't want to take on – I always think – people often ask me, do you get upset about social media? And I say, not really because I think – I'm pretty dismissive of people going, oh, you're a sack of crap or whatever Mm, nonsense mm. they say on social media. But I think if you're going to ignore people telling you how bad you are, then you can't really take on board people telling you how awesome you are either. Yes, So So I think all of that, 
sort of what people think of your work is to a degree sort of none of your business. You know, people say, what people think of you is none of your business. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit like that. I think, I hope people like my work. It's nice to get awards, but I don't sort of look at myself in the mirror and go, hey, you're an award-winning journalist now. Of course, but this is the interesting thing about the business that I like to drill down into because when you're on the outside looking in and you have had no experience within media, you think to yourself, oh, my goodness, winning a Walkley Award, like that's a huge thing. And it is a huge thing. But when you're within it, it so becomes a step on your journey that it's mm. not like you don't, you're not excited about it. It's like, oh, what a great honour and this is fantastic. But it's not like you are stepping from never having been in journalism before to winning a Walkley. There are a series of tiny little incremental steps that mean it is almost just the next Completely. step on the path. And also you can have – I mean – Again, once you've been around a long time and not just in journalism but in life, you know that sometimes things in your life are going great and sometimes in your life things are going to be going really bad. And so now I'm at a point where I think when I have a nice moment like that or things are going well, it's great to enjoy that because it will pass. So I remember um, I had a night when I wrote a book called Detainee 002 about 10 years ago and there was a book launch and there was a dinner afterwards and the book launch was lovely and everyone made nice speeches and there was a whole lot of people there, you know, backslapping me and saying, oh, you're awesome, you're awesome. Lovely dinner. My parents had come down from Brizzy and we were heading home later and I remember thinking in the cab on the way home, it doesn't really get better than this. I just mm-hmm. got fated by everyone got a book I've always wanted to write a book I've done it and I thought that's great but I'm still just in a cab going home to bed I still got to wake up tomorrow morning and just go back into my normal life so it doesn't really it's not like you achieve those things and then it's like and now I can be completely happy forever (laughs) Um, it's just like something that you do and then you're just back into your normal life you know the next day and it might open up Sometimes when those you do those things, they open up opportunities or whatever. But um, it's good to it, – it's not – some of those things like, oh, I'm, I want to be on TV or I want to win a Walkley or I want to write a book or whatever, there is a sense of achievement when they happen, but they don't it, – it's not like it sort of transforms your inner life into something mm. entirely different. Yeah, absolutely. This job that you do now, we've talked a little about how across everything you need to be and that part of the job scares the crap out of me because I'm exactly like you. I will over-prepare for everything. <laughs> I would not be ever sleeping because I'd be terrified <laughs> that I didn't know something in some tiny paragraph somewhere that was written that – is it is it all consuming in a sense? Yes, and I do have this constant gnawing sense that I'm uh – rushing and I'm behind mm. um, like almost like you know that feeling when you think cramming like, oh, I've for forgotten exams. something yeah it's like cramming my job is <laughs> yeah. like cramming for an exam every day you know that feeling like oh, I think I've forgotten something I pretty much have that all the time so that's pretty um can be a bit sort of tricky but please tell me time, you've got some lavender pumping in the diffuser in the <laughs> office or something because I would be a ball of anxiety like I my anxiety issues would not deal with it there's, a, there's a lot of anxiety <laughs> issues that's for sure um no but I also it's tempered by the fact that it's fun and exciting and I just really love it and so you know when there's when a big stories running uh it's just it's so exciting mm. so yeah it's a bit I'm probably this job I think's probably destroyed me to do for doing anything else just because the constant like you know what's happening now what's happening next you know it's just fun do you uh do you get nervous before interviews depends on the interview I've been doing it so long now I used to get really nervous all the time and now I'm much better Mm. um sometimes I'll just get a big burst of it out of the blue for no apparent reason I think god why am I nervous it's just a run-of-the-mill show tonight what's the matter with me um I think it's to do with being tired and other things as well Mm. um if it's the prime minister I'm always nervous uh it depends on what 
I think the level of scrutiny is going to be budget night with the treasurer as like one of the biggest interviews of the year, probably the hardest day of the year for me at work, always usually pretty sick with anxiety. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it just, just depends. I'm doing um, in a couple of weeks Senator John McCain who's visiting Australia. Oh, wow. So I'll probably be pretty nervous for him because he's a big name and mm. it's one of those things where I'll be thinking – American reporters will be watching this and seeing what I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so. yeah. There's a lot of pressure in those uh, in those things. Do you have a good relationship or do you have any relationship with politicians outside of the – I think it's pretty difficult to be friends with politicians mm. and so I would say I'm not friends with any of them but I would say I am friendly with them um, and I try to have good relationships. Like I try to have respectful, uh, accessible – because I need people to answer the phone when I ring them. Yeah, so I try to have um, like – a nice relationship with them um, and a relationship that if they don't like how their interview went that they can tell me that and have a blast at me but then they're still going to come back next time because mm. a big part of my job is getting people to show up. I would have yeah. thought that that would have been like 7.30 would be one of those things where politicians are like, oh, no, this is the must-do, we're going to do it no matter what. They're a bit like that but you've got to also remember that often you're chasing them on when they're having a bad day because yeah, things have gone true. wrong and so you want them to come on and they know they're going to get a bit of a kicking. Mm. If, they, if they're confident and they think, okay, I can turn this around, then, you know, they are more willing to want to do it. Some people are more eager to do it than others. Um, but it's just that if they come on and it turns into one of those interviews that, is written up everywhere the next day that they got smashed or whatever, you don't want them to then feel like, oh, well, that didn't work out for me. I'm not coming back again. Do you enjoy the argy-bargy of it? Not really. I have to steal myself for those sort of ones because mm. um, it's socially awkward. Yeah, of course. Oh, my God. I mean, there's, yeah, there's nothing nice about it, isn't no. it? No. <laughs> so to have somebody in and to sort of, you know, um, basically say – expose holes in their argument to their face, whatever. It's not – you wouldn't – or if you said something and I thought you weren't addressing my question, in real life I'd never go – Rachel, sorry to interrupt you, but you haven't addressed what I asked you there about your, your upbringing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would be obnoxious in a regular social environment. Yeah. And so it feels weird, but that's just part of the dynamic. And m- most people who come in um, understand that that's what 7.30 is and what it involves, and so they tend to be pretty – good with it and, and also most people know that sometimes you come in and the interview goes really well for you and sometimes you come in and it doesn't go so well and then the next day the news cycle's moved on and it's no big deal usually but it goes back to what you were saying about performance like there is an element of performance and this is one of the, the reasons why i've really enjoyed listening to your podcast with annabelle crab because there's a sense of you as a person like i think you know i've this is the first time we've met but you certainly just from listening to your show I think, oh my goodness, that her in those interviews doesn't seem like her as a person, you <laughs> yeah. know? Like, of course, it's still you, yeah. but you're not, you don't seem like the type of person that'd be like, oh, I'm going to tear you down. <laughs> no. So it's, no. there's, there's an element of putting on that kind of mask and going, in I go to battle. Totally. I mean, I think the thing that gets me through, and I think this would probably also come through in the podcast, is that, um, I can't stand waffle and nonsense. I like things to be direct and I don't like bullshit. Mm. And so for me in that environment at 7.30 um, with politicians, I just think, look, I'm here on behalf of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are watching who are potentially voting for you. They pay you a heap of money in taxes and I think that they'd just like some basic answers to some pretty basic questions. Most of what I ask is not that hard. It's mm. pretty straightforward. I try to ask what I think the average person would want to know about things. And so – I think that gets me through it because I think, well, I, I, I'm happy to go in there and not have a row 
as long as they answer the questions that I think the average person would want to have answered. And so for me, that's what sort of gets me through that I just think, well, if it gets sort of sharp, that's not me wanting it to get sharp. I just want them to answer the questions. Mm. Um, And so even when it gets more confrontational, I still try to keep my tone even and pleasant and just to the point and matter of fact because that's where I feel like I I just want to basically – bust them out of their talking points and their spin and all that sort of stuff. Does that frustrate the hell out of you? Oh, my (laughs) word. Sometimes I think that people forget that they're talking to actual real people. Another human being? Mm. I just think to myself sometimes I I would really struggle because I feel like every two seconds I'd be saying – who are you? It's like, what what is this charade we are playing? What weird film have I stepped into? Like talk like a normal human being. Sometimes I feel like busting into it and just saying, just a second, what did you have for breakfast today? And when they say <laughs> toast, say, Great, so you can actually hear me and answer a direct question. Now blah blah blah. Because yeah. it's just sometimes it's like, are you not understanding what I'm saying here? Uh, I'm but just what do you wanna... think as somebody who's always on the receiving end of that? Do you think because I always think to myself, oh, it's got to eventually come undone. Like they've got to stop acting like this. And I think probably things like the rise of Trump and the rise of Pauline Hanson, people try to say, look, this is a, a product of this kind of running us through the spin cycle rubbish. Everybody wants somebody to stand in front. So if you want these kind of people to be the people that are leading it, then you keep doing that. But the problem with that is that it doesn't seem to be changing. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting because I think the public craves authenticity. Oh, yeah. And you just don't get a lot of it, frankly, in politics. And so I just wonder, you know, what what it's going to take to change that because you'd think it's, – it's interesting watching Trump because the reason people have gone for Trump is because they've had a gut full of what's been on offer from the mainstream. If Trump were to fall, out, to fall over now, I think, well, I'm not sure if the mainstream's learnt the message yet about what people actually want. Same within Australia now, you know, look at the votes for the the primary vote for the major parties. It's clear that a lot of people are really disillusioned with what's on offer. But you don't yet notice in the way that the major parties act that they have really – they sort of pay lip service to that, but I, you don't see much change in their behaviour. Do you think it's people with around Canberra, like the advisors, and I don't know how the inner workings work, but do you think that people have just been in the soup too long? They can't see what things look like to the outside because it's been so long since they've been somebody on the outside. Yeah, and I mean, journos are a bit like that as well, or, or anyone, because you hang around – usually people who think like you Mm. and so you think if you say for example are big on um, refugees you think everyone cares about that issue actually most people don't care that much about that issue Mm. Um, if you're a big campaigning for gay marriage you think it's a no-brainer everyone wants that to happen well everyone might want it to happen or a lot of people the polls would show a majority of people want it to happen but is it a front of front of mind issue for most people probably not it probably comes below how they're going to pay their doctor's bills this week or other um, you know how crappy public transport is um, so I think we, we all fall into that trap of thinking, I think like this and my friends think like this, therefore the world must be like this. Mm. Um, and so politicians I think are no difference to that because they mix with other politicians. The one thing I think is that political people mix with a lot of other political people and so I think that they think everyone is political whereas most people don't give a rat. Yeah. Yeah, have no idea and no. have no interest because no. it's boring for the most part. For most people, they go, why am I going to bother about this? I'm struggling to put food on my table. Totally. Not interested. They care about political issues mm. like um, road quality and hospital yeah. quality and things like that, but they don't really care who's up or down in Canberra no. and, you know, the sort of 
things that Canberra fights over often, I don't think. I also think now, you know, pay lip service to this idea of people wanting authenticity, but when you've got a giant orange bloke with crazy hair (laughs) standing up and down and, like, running around basically naked over there, you have no better distraction in your life than to give the authenticity a try. Like, you're seeing somebody go out and say that he can shoot somebody in public and it's going to make no difference. Like, now is the time not to just say it, but to give it a crack and see if it actually has. Because I still feel like then, oh, I can't really show my true colours because it might turn around. I'm like, you have no better example of what this kind of, how far you can go with this. I often wonder what would happen if, say, um, you know, in Australian politics, the opposition popped up an idea and the government went, um, look, actually, we don't we don't mind the sound of that. I thank Bill Shorten for that idea. It's terrific. We're going to take a look at it. Like, I just I'm wonder what would happen. Day. <laughs> I'm dying for that day on either side where somebody, get, because I think it is, it's, the probability of every single idea that somebody has being wrong on the opposite. <laughs> like, it's not actually physically possible. Exactly. So, it, it, both parties can't be wrong or right 100% of the time if they think the other person's wrong. Like, it just doesn't work out that way. And I think surely it should be about ideas. Is it a good idea or is it a bad idea? Who cares who had it? I know. Does it work? Will it make things better? Or is it crap? And it's like, you know, the, the government could say, oh, we're going to give every Australian today a Freddo Frog. <laughs> And the opposition would go, well, that's just contributing to the Australia's obesity <laughs> problem. It's, it's just outrageous. You know, like that's just how it goes. It's or they could so go, tiring. we're going to give every Australian an apple. And they'd be like, well, this is just an outrage for the uh, orange industry. You know, it's just like, <laughs> oh, God. It gets so exhausting. It does. Um, how do you think journalism's changed over the years? Do you think it's different now? Oh, I mean, the technology has just changed it. I just unbelievably that that has been the single biggest change in my uh career just the fact that you know there's been this terrorist attack in manchester uh today while we're recording this and i mean there's video footage out of it already like uh, in the past things would have happened like you think of say 9-11 if that happened today Mm. you would have people putting who were in the towers tweeting putting out vision you would it would be an entirely different um experience to what we actually saw so that um ordinary people recording stuff on their smartphones and sharing it has been huge and also just things like um the fact that i could be in an absolutely remote location in the middle of nowhere record an interview like this and be able to instantly send it back to Sydney from my laptop. So you'd be in deepest, darkest Africa and do that and be able to get your material out. Whereas I remember when I started in journalism, even if you were somewhere like northern New South Wales, you'd have to drive to the nearest um, what's called the Telstra point where you would plug your gear into a box in the middle of nowhere and then feed it back in real time to the newsroom where they would then edit it. So, mm. yeah, that that has just been massive massive changes i guess in that sense it's it's great from the perspective of finding people to talk to and having access to more footage and all that kind of stuff but at the same time it's put so much pressure on the industry because the churn and burn nature like you think oh my goodness we used to wait for the papers at the end of the day and that's where you get your news Mm. now if something's not up the second it happens, you know, mm. there's so you're literally just chasing your tail all the time. And to find something new. So, for example, for 7.30 tonight, we'll be thinking, okay, well, that vision will have been around all day. Who are we going to talk to? We can't really go for an eyewitness because that's going to have been heard to death by 7.30 tonight. Whereas 10 years ago, you could have easily gone for an eyewitness um, and, you know, you might still be waiting to see vision. You mm. might, vision might not have come in yet of it. Even things like I think for, for young journos starting out or people wanting to, to – um, 
get into the media, like say what we're doing now, recording a podcast, which you you are a publisher, you publish your own this is basically a radio show, mm-hmm. um, what used to, would have been previously a radio um, show. So basically, and you know, the amount of gear that you've got, say it's say it's a thousand bucks worth of gear, so low bar to entry, and it's just basically how much labour you want to put into it yourself. In the past, if you wanted this to get out and have anybody listen to it, you would have needed a radio station or someone to say, yes, thanks very much, Rachel. We'd like to have your show on air. It's mm-hmm. going to be on at you know ten p.m. on weeknights or once a week or whatever. Yeah. Um, whereas now anybody can make their own show, and if people like it and if there's a market for it, it will find an audience. Mm. And so that I think is pretty exciting because it's then you know a question of it's not the fact that there's a barrier to you being able to publish material. It's can you find an audience for your material? Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting time, uh, and I think there are a lot of radio executives that are very angry that they know. No longer hold the keys. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> and we're coming to the end here now. Oh, what do you What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the industry? Probably the worst is the uncertainty. Mm. Um, as I said earlier, I think just the fact that you always feel like the clock's ticking, and and uh, you know, there's going to be a time where you're not going to be wanted anymore because for whatever reason, there's a new flavour of the month. You're too old. Uh, they want something fresh. Mm. Uh, whatever the, the euphemism <laughs> is, but we don't want you anymore. <laughs> so that I find um, to be one of the bad things. The best thing about it, I just think, is how goddamn interesting it is. I mean, I just. I never come to work and feel bored. Like, mm. I mean, I just could barely think of a day in 25 years of my career where I've been bored at work. And I think that what an incredible thing to be able to say. Huge privilege. Um, I, I hate gender questions. I hate them <laughs> because I've, I often get asked, like, what's it like to be a woman in the media? And I was like, it's just like being a person. <laughs> like, I, yes, there have been people in my career that I've clearly, it's clearly been an issue, but it's never really mattered to me. But I, I just wondered about the idea that, you know, there are still some people who don't like to see a woman go at a politician. You know, there's a sense that uh, – do you ever get any kind of backlash in that sense or – I mean, I do get the usual sort of social media, um, you know, gendered uh, insults. So, mm. you know, you're ugly or you're fat oh. or you're, you're um, you know, whatever they want to complain about. Um, I love it when people say a- that because I go, great, you've just complete- – you've made me realise your, your argument is completely <laughs> worthless. Fantastic. <laughs> exactly. Or the, um, you know, just sort of insults around um, – Oh, you know, she always gives Malcolm Turnbull a soft go because she must be sleeping with him, like, you know, that sort of stuff. Or, you know, you've gone up ahead of the ABC because you must have been sleeping with Mark Scott, like always that sort Mm. of um, thing. But generally, I mean, I've I've felt not like I – sort of like you, I I haven't felt really that I've had any – particular issues around being a woman I mean I saw Tracy Spicer's memoir came out recently about being a woman in television and that's all pretty foreign to me I don't know if it's because I spent most of my career at the ABC plenty of male executives at the ABC um I felt the same too and I you know bulk of my career was at Triple M like you can't get a more masculine joint than that but I think I'd I don't know whether it's a part of the, the person on the receiving end, like how we feel about ourselves. Like I, don't, I just think I grew up feeling that way, like there was no difference and maybe that's a parent's thing or I don't know. Or maybe I sometimes have wondered have I had those things and I've just sort of excused it as um, part of, you know, just the way things worked. I, mm. I just don't know because I can't – if I thought back about mm, have I ever been like, you know, sexually harassed or whatever, I can't – no examples come to mind. Um, 
but I don't know, maybe maybe there have been and I've just sort of thought, oh, that's stupid old fart, blah, 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 and then not thought about it again. I just don't know. But, but, or maybe I've just been incredibly lucky. But I don't know whether there's – and this is something I'm interested in your point of view on because I struggle with that, say, John Laws. He – you know, there was a comment that he made on the project the other night uh, or Steve Price was interviewing him about women wearing skirts around the office uh, and Clementine Ford wrote a piece about how outrageous it is that we're excusing this old guy for his antiquated ideas and all of that kind of stuff i find it very difficult to get to that level of outrage like there i just go oh that's amusing you know is it a bit icky would i i don't own a skirt so good luck me ever getting a job in his office but it doesn't fill me with this feminist rage yeah sometimes i wonder like is there something wrong with me that i'm not passionate enough about things because i don't really get that revved up about anything totally the same and i think man i probably should be revved up about stuff more um but i just i don't know i just sort of like i saw the thing about the skirts and i thought no well that's bloody stupid isn't it and then I didn't give it a second <laughs> second more thought <laughs> yeah, no me too I mean maybe if I worked in that workplace I would but like really you couldn't if you were like an awesome producer could you really not go to John and go John about the skirt thing I just don't want to wear a skirt exactly practical for me like, <laughs> I just I, I mean maybe maybe you know you couldn't maybe you'd get the sack I, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't actually know but um but the other thing was like Stuart Bocchi I was talking to him who's worked with John Laws for a long time and he said he's had two female assistants in his entire career you know that w- women have worked for him for decades if he was such a horrendous sexist pig and a tyrant would they have you know you'd expect a turnover that is much higher but it's interesting because I feel very I feel quite similar I don't feel like um that I like it's ever been an issue but I I often when I see outrage around me I go am I not passionate enough well like I, I've been at the uh, receiving end of things that other people have been more outraged than me so um <laughs> yeah. there was a few years ago where a liberal advisor called Graham Morris on radio described me as being a bit of a cow <laughs> and uh I tweeted something like um oh well better to be a bit of a cow than a dinosaur and then I didn't think about it again until I then logged on like hours later and it's like oh my god now it's an actual story um and I just felt like oh Graham said something a bit dumb um and then I thought I had a pretty funny comeback yeah and I thought that was the end of it but then other people are like more outraged than than I was or I just sort of think I don't know I hate that sort of um I, I really hate even when someone's done something that I think was stupid and I disagree with. I hate that stacks on Ugh, yeah. sort of social media mentality where, okay, yeah, that person misspoke. That was a bit of a dumb thing to say. Really? We now all have to pile on them and mm. publicly humiliate them until they apologise and it's just like, oh, come on. And also you're so right, that idea of can we ask the individual, the one person at the centre of this if they are still concerned about it. If their answer is no, can we all shut up? <laughs> can we shut up? Do not be outraged on my behalf. I appreciate it. But shush, you know, if I have not got an issue with it, let us all just put it to bed. But it is. It's this stacks on approach. And I think everybody wants to be relevant. Everybody wants to have their tweet reprinted on the article on the, online, you know. And mm, you just think, I have know. we not all got better things to do with our time? Oh, I just like all that, you know, I, <laughs> this is what I think is this something wrong with me. I think, oh, I could get passionate and outraged, but I just want to eat cake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who could be bothered? I just want to eat cake That's and read Who Weekly. <laughs> Exactly. Life is too short. All right, we're down to the final five questions. First one, your biggest regret. Probably just not being in the moment enough and just thinking, okay, what next? What next? What am I going to do now? Um, instead of just actually slowing down. I think I've gotten better with that as I get older, but definitely in my 20s, I think I was a bit too much like that. Your dream gig? Probably doing it 
to be honest. Um, you know, I would love to if after this. I mean, I feel like I've got some more of this to do, but I would like to love to host something like Enough Rope. Oh, yeah, you'd be great at that. I'd love to do something like that. Mm. But this is sort of the dream gig. I guess maybe that's uh, my third of the final five questions is a big idea that you have yet to get up. Uh, um, I want to write a novel. Oh, you do? Yeah, I'd be pretty sad if I died and I hadn't had a stab at writing a novel. Uh, like a fiction, fiction. Yeah, I don't have anything oh. on in on the boil, but that's like if I go right back to what I said about when I was in grade three, I, w- I wasn't talking about wanting to write non-fiction books. I was talking about wanting to write a novel. Yeah, and so I haven't had a stab at that, and so I need to at some point I need to structure my work life so I have time to write and give that a stab. And even if it's absolute crap, I just need to do it. Are you good at imaginations and storylines and that kind of stuff? It's been a bit beaten out of me because of being so heavily immersed doing? in fact-based mm. work for a really long time. So I need to, you know. But you can you can real life sometimes make the best novels. You just have to fiddle around with it. Trump's a great example. But then the editor would go, this <laughs> too is much. too ridiculous. Wind it back. <laughs> Dial it down. <laughs> yeah. If you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Is there anything else in your life that you wanted to do that's left unexplored? Realistically, given what I was good at at school, I probably would have ended up being a lawyer or a teacher. That's probably what I would have ended up doing. If I wasn't doing this right now, say if I got the sack when I left here, probably I'd end up in corporate comms. Then the pipe dream would be like being a florist or a Broadway superstar. (laughs) (laughs) It's not too late, Lee. It's so not too late. The florist part I think is more achievable than the Broadway Broadway superstar. superstar. I think I've slept that run a little bit late, sadly. (laughs) What different ends of the spectrum too. I'd either like to be a florist or a Broadway superstar. (laughs) Yeah, really introverted, just working alone with flowers all day. Or... Singing songs in front of thousands. Exactly. Uh, And finally, your advice to people wanting to get into the business. Do the work. Do the work. Um, You know, you can't just rock up and go, I want to be on TV. When people say to me, oh, I'd like to be on TV, I think – do you like getting woken up at 5am and going out on stories? Do you like standing outside court for seven and eight hours a day? Do you like talking to people? Do you like writing stories about it? If you like all that stuff, then you might end up on TV. If you don't like it, that do you like shift work? If you don't like any of that stuff, then this is not the job for you. You're sweeter than me because when they say to me, I want to be on TV, I think you're dead to me. <laughs> yeah, there's a bit of that too. Exactly. <laughs> like if that is the entire goal, if that's yeah. all of the elements of what you want, if you just want to be on TV, yeah. you are dead to me. Yeah. Like, t- tell me I'm great at this, I have a passion for this and I want to be known as the biggest expert on this and eventually maybe I might make a TV show <laughs> about my love of insert exciting thing here. But don't just say I just want to stand in front of a table. What, because you just want to be invited to parties because you think it's like a, no work? That drives me nuts. So you are a lot more, you're a lot nicer than uh, than I am uh, for sure. Lee, I am so happy that you said yes to coming on this show oh, and it has you. been delightful chatting to oh, you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for tuning in to my chat with the lovely Lisa. I'm very glad I have finally had a chance to meet her and tell her to her face that I think she is wonderful. Make sure you check out her podcast as well with Annabelle Crab Chat 10 Looks 3. It's a really nice discussion between two very smart women who are dear friends and it also provides a really nice contrast to the Lee that you see on 7.30 each night. So make sure you check it out and subscribe. Speaking of which, a big thank you to the new subscribers 
members uh, that have jumped on board this week. And to those who have left a review, shout out to Morgs PM, Nyokin, I think I'm saying that right, and uh, Tarab Man, I really appreciate your reviews. Whatever happens within the back end of iTunes with the magical algorithms, each review helps. So uh, if you like the show, I would love it if you could pop into the back end of iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast and leave a little review. Hopefully, it's a good one. Next week on the show, I'll be chatting to another host on the project. I'm slowly making my way through the list, Mr. Waleed Ali. He is a very intelligent man and we chat a lot about media and the odd attention that television personalities get, as well as his path to hosting one of the most high-profile shows in the country. He says that media and journalism wasn't necessarily a path that he chose early, but there were signs in his youth that he might end up doing it. I did do a radio station at school in grade six that would air every Wednesday at lunchtime. When you were at school, I don't know. They had radio studios at your school. No, 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 no. We just recorded it in a room through a ghetto blaster type thing. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. And so, (laughs) you know, there was this period where you would, the bell would ring for lunch, but you wouldn't be allowed to go outside for 15 minutes because you had to sit there and eat. Did you have that? What? Did you not have that? What, you had to sit down and eat before you could so go there was and a, play? So, lunch, the bell for lunch goes. Oh, no, and, and the there's first, mass exodus the first, in no, my So, school. the first 10 minutes, you're in the classroom eating. I think because they obviously figured out kids just wouldn't eat. And it was in that 10, 15-minute period, that's when we would our radio show would go on out through the PA. You Hang on, were you eating on air? This is very no, no, bad. No, no, if you Oh, okay. I thought you were actually doing the show. No. Right, so you would record it on a ghetto blaster, what, yeah. on a tape, and then yeah. and then they'd play it over the PA yeah. system on a tape. Yeah. We got out of class to do the show. Wow. And that wasn't the main reason for no. pitching the idea no, to get wasn't. out of class. I didn't think they'd let us do that. <laughs> so how long were you doing that for? That was just in grade six. It was one year. Just we did. for one year. They said we'll give you four weeks. And then at the you got end, an extension. We did. You got picked up, and the next season got picked uh, up. Yesterday, we, 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 it was a rolling season. We just kept oh, okay, going. right. And then when it got to the end, we we finally the big moment was when we finally played Buster Move by <laughs> Young MC because <laughs> all year people had been playing Buster Move, playing Buster Move, and we weren't sure if it was a bit too risque. Yeah, for that time slot. <laughs> I hope you'll join me for that chat. I'll see you then. <laughs> 